0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: This is MPB News.
0: Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, September 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a coalition of health officials are sending a united message to Mississippians to fight the flu. Then Mothers Against Drunk Driving turns 40. We look back with their national president and discuss new initiatives the group is pursuing. Plus, in today's book club, a remarkable story that began 30 years ago in Ted Jackson's book, You Ought to Do a Story About Me. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A coalition of doctors and associations called Flu Fighters is uniting to urge Mississippians to get their flu shot. Flu season begins in October, but doctors say now's the time to get a flu shot. Dr. Mark Horn, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, tells our Kobe Vance viruses like the flu or coronavirus lower immunity to other illnesses, which could lead to severe outcomes for patients.
2: It is so important every year, and even more so this year, for everyone to get their flu shot. And when I say everyone, I mean if you're over six months of age and you're drawing breath we re- and don't have a firm contraindication, meaning some really good and compelling reason that you should not receive it, like you're allergic to it, then we want everybody to get a flu shot because we know that in doing so, we will reduce the number of flu cases. And in reducing the number of flu cases, we know that we will make... Uh, the health of Mississippians better, and we will reduce the stress on the health system as we try to get through this fall and winter season with flu and COVID-19.
1: And so what about this year makes it different that we would need to have a coalition? Because if I'm understanding correctly, it's not necessarily something you will do every year for a flu season.
2: We haven't done it every year. I think what makes this year different is our experience thus far with COVID-19 and the understanding of Bad uh, the, the, how bad the combination of COVID-19 pandemic and a flu season, if it were to be a bad flu season, would be. Um, each independently is difficult to manage. Each is independently potentially lethal, particularly to the more vulnerable in our society. Combined, they're not really adding to one another. They're, we are deeply fearful that they will multiply one another. So everything that we do to prevent influenza – uh, will reduce the number of ill people who might be more susceptible to catching COVID nineteen, or the number of people who might need to be in the hospital.
1: And now, going off that, you mentioned that like it can multiply. Um, can you talk more about that? Would that mean that like people that are um, that have contracted COVID might be more at risk for the flu or anything like that?
2: Anything that lowers your immunity. Um, any concurrent illness will make you more susceptible to other illnesses. So if you have influenza, it's very common for us during a standard flu season to see people who come in with influenza that, has, um, that can have a negative effect, immediate effect on your resistance to other infections. So we'll see people who get influenza and then they get a bacterial pneumonia. Um, and so we know that happens. We've also seen that with COVID-19. COVID-19 clearly affects the immune system in negative ways. Uh, And so uh, in many patients, not everybody, but many, and in doing so, it opens them up to other problems, uh, other infections, secondary infections. So we haven't seen COVID and influenza together in the same patient, but we can only imagine that that's not going to be a good combination.
0: Dr. Mark Horn is president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Experts say wearing masks and social distancing will help reduce transmission of the flu, but the virus still poses a serious threat because of the coronavirus. Dr. John Godet is president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. He says young children and older adults are the most at risk for severe outcomes from the flu and measures should be taken to avoid a twindemic.
3: Flu vaccines can be given to children as young as six months of age. But for infants and children, start with your primary care provider, your pediatrician, or your family practitioner. If you are an adult, you can go to your doctor's office, but you can also go to a pharmacy to get your flu shot.
1: And now this year, you know, we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and in our schools, we're already taking extra measures such as like wearing masks and Mm -hmm. social distancing. You know, Mm -hmm. some parents might be curious, like, you know, why does my child need the flu vaccine if they're already doing these other things that Mm -hmm. might prevent this transmission? Mm
3: -hmm. And those other things, there's evidence that shows that all the things we're doing to prevent the transmission of coronavirus seems to be reducing the transmission of other infections as well. And that's great news. You want to use all your tools in your toolkit. So the hand washing, the social distancing, and the mask wearing are uh, vitally important for the reduction of the transmission of coronavirus, and it will help with influenza as well. Of course, it won't eliminate it, so we want to do everything we can in order to reduce the transmission of the flu and not have what we call a twendemic, which would mean uh, two circulating viruses, coronavirus, as well as the flu, because they, uh, they can be hard to tell the difference. You know, if somebody has a fever or a headache or sore throat, you really don't know if it's the flu or coronavirus, and, and, it, and it would cause you to have to be subjected to a bunch of testing that you may not otherwise have to undergo if you saved yourself or if you prevented yourself from getting the flu by getting a flu shot.
1: And you know it's been—we've all our minds have been so just caught up in the coronavirus for the past Mm -hmm. months and months and months. Can you remind us how severe um, the flu can be for young people uh, as they as they face that that virus?
3: Right. So um, the flu causes people die in by uh, from the flu every year in the tens of thousands, Uh, and it it doesn't seem to even. make a, a whole lot of concern probably because we're inured to that. We're just used to it. And the coronavirus came along and uh and and just knocked those numbers out of the park. Uh and and more you know, deaths and more morbidity uh, harm from coronavirus is happening at a rate multitudes times larger than the flu. But uh that doesn't change the fact that the flu caused a lot of Severe illness and even deaths every year every year in Mississippi. Uh, I'm, I remember we always would wait to get our first pediatric death, and the The major difference from a death from the flu and a death from coronavirus is it 's actually you can prevent or try to help prevent death from the flu with a flu vaccine. So it's a double tragedy. Of course, any death of a young, any age person is a tragedy. Death of a young person is a tremendous tragedy. And just, just the thought of that death being preventable just makes it that much harder to stomach, and, which is why I'm telling everybody to get their flu shots this year.
0: Dr. John Godet, president of the Mississippi Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics with our Kobe Vance. Coming up, Mothers Against Drunk Driving turns 40. We look back with their national president and discuss new initiatives the group is pursuing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems.
4: Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, more commonly known as MAD, is celebrating the 40th anniversary of its founding. The organization has long served to humanize the tragedies associated with impaired driving and is releasing a new survey that measures the American public's attitudes and knowledge about the impact of marijuana on traffic safety. According to the survey, one in eight U.S. adults admits to having drunk driven under the influence of marijuana. President Helen Witte joins us to reflect on MAD's origins and how the group is facing the evolving issues of impaired driving.
4: MAD started in 1980 in California with the death of Carrie Leitner. She was 13 years old and walking along the side of the road on the way to a church fair when she was uh, run down, knocked out of her sneakers. Uh, by a repeat offender and left to die on the side of the road. Um, and when her mother found out that this was a repeat drunk driver, uh, she just said, we, we, you know, this has got to stop. Her mother, Candace Leitner, then, uh, founded MAD. And because she learned that so many people were dying because of drunk driving, the numbers, are somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 every year. She started talking to lawmakers, and she started talking uh, to people all across the country. She was joined by Cindy Lamb on the uh, West East Coast, and whose uh, d- young daughter, uh, infant, was rendered quadriplegic by uh, an impaired driver, a drunk driver. And so those two women united the coast. And everybody in between. And what happened, what MAD did so beautifully was uh, all those numbers don't have a heart and soul. And they put the, the faces and the names on the numbers. And people started telling their story.
0: You know, just this morning I was on your website. And there are some rolling numbers, which I think have an impact as well. Uh, incidents a day people killed, this is in 2018, and then injuries per year, which is in the hundreds of thousands.
4: Yes, yes. That's, that's, we still have our work to do. What I'm proud of is for our 40th anniversary, MAD has cut the fatalities due to drunk driving in half. It, uh, 10, over 10,000 people die, which is way too many every year but it's been cut in half from 20,000 or, tw- or t- somewhere between 20 and 30,000. Um, and also 300,000 people are injured every year, possibly, you know, life-changing injuries like broken necks or broken backs. So it is still something that we all need to work for. um, we know that alcohol is still the number one killer on our highways. That's according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So that's our goal. And we also know that marijuana is an emerging problem and that innocent people are being killed by uh, drivers impaired on marijuana. And I do
0: want to ask you about that. I'm thinking you could add an extra D. You could be M-A-D-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk and drugged driving.
4: Um, Yes. Yes. And I should say that originally in 1980, MAD started about uh, with drunk driving, but we always also advocated for drugged driving because, you know, alcohol is a drug, and now, especially in 2015, it was formally added to our mission statement. So we are, we could be MADDD. Um, because it is uh, such an emerging problem, and it, this could be any drug, this could also be prescription drugs that uh, impair a person. What kind of so, evidence
0: have you gotten, have you gathered even anecdotal uh, information regarding marijuana and other drugs while driving?
4: We, we hear from law enforcement anecdotally that they are arresting and they are finding more people impaired by marijuana. Of course, as states legalize the drug, um, there are going to be more people using it, and I have met as spokesperson for uh, MAD across the country. I meet families who, uh, whose loved ones have been killed by people impaired on marijuana, and my own story answers this. Um, my daughter, this is 20 years ago today now, um, this year, uh, my daughter was rollerblading on a bike path close to our home when she was run down by a person who was impaired on alcohol and marijuana. And, and my daughter's life ended. Uh, mine did not. I personally didn't think I could would be doing this 20 years later, but it's an honor to work with all the other victims that have come along uh, since then and to be encouraged by them all. Um, here's another thing that I want to make sure everyone knows, that people who combine alcohol and marijuana, that is more than twice danger of just either drug. H- here's the thing. The drugs affect our judgment first. And so everyone thinks they're fine and they don't intend to kill anyone and then they've ended a life, and shattered a family and are headed to prison. This is something we need to stop. It's, it's, and it's possible. That's the thing. It's possible. I want to, if I may, I want to talk about what we're working toward now legislatively, which is so exciting. Sure, go ahead. Because this has just come about in the last uh, few years, is due to the technology that is emerging because of the autonomous vehicles, which would, of course, end drunk driving because you're not going to have a driver. But right now we have the ability to um, imp- put in advanced alcohol detection technology in every new vehicle. This would mean that it would make a car unable to be driven by a person who was impaired, either on alcohol or another drug. There are uh, technologies that can monitor the driver and, and, so, and actually can see the pupils of the driver through sunglasses. So this is so exciting. This is passive technology. You wouldn't know it was in the car and, until, until it was needed. Um, It can, you know, we have technology now that keeps you in the lane. We have technology that can put on the brakes. Just can you imagine the families that remain intact and all the hearts that remain unbroken? And we are working on Capitol Hill very uh, closely with our lawmakers, and we want to see this required in every new vehicle. And what the research tells us is if this happens, We'll save 9,400 lives every year.
0: Helen Witte is the president of MAD Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry for the loss of your daughter. I'm sure even 20 years later, it's very painful for you.
4: She lives in my heart, and we go everywhere. So oh, thank you.
0: Thank you, Helen.
4: Thank you, Karen, so much.
0: The legislation of medical marijuana will be on the ballot this November in Mississippi. Join MPB News, radio and television for a special edition of At Issue on October 14th at 7 p.m. as senior reporter Desiree Frazier examines the issue and ballot initiatives 65 and 65A. Coming up in today's book club, a remarkable story that began 30 years ago in Ted Jackson's new book, You Ought to Do a Story About Me. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Blues Archive is a collection of sound recordings, photographs, memorabilia. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We get researchers and blues fans from all over the world.
4: Over 70,000 audio recordings in the Blues Archive. You can
2: listen by going to mpbonline.org
5: slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Ted Jackson has been a photojournalist with the New Orleans Times-Picayune for the last 36 years. The Pulitzer Prize winner is a Macomb native and alum of the University of Southern Mississippi. Thirty years ago, he took a picture of a homeless man that led to a revelation, redemption, and his new book, You Ought to Do a Story About Me.
5: It started with this random assignment that I was given for a hot July afternoon. My photo editor wanted me to go down and look for a homeless camp that he had spotted over the weekend. And and I did that and the camp was messed up, but I headed back to my car, just kind of wondering what had happened. I walked upon a man who was sleeping on a rusty box spring covered in a clear plastic sheet. His camp was pretty remarkable looking in that it was so neat. So I climbed up on the bridge and shot a picture looking straight down and then I woke him up and asked him about the other camp that I was more interested in. And he asked why I wanted to know. I told him I was with the newspaper. And he just kind of looked over at a a newspaper copy of the times Picayune that was laid by his bed. And he looked at me and he said you ought to do a story about me. And as a Journalist, You hear that all the time. You know, take my picture, mister. Put me in the paper, that kind of thing. And that day especially, I really learned to pay attention to those comments. So I asked him why, and he said, because I played in three Super Bowls. Of course, that got my attention. And uh, when I asked him who he was, the name didn't register because I just wasn't the kind of sports fan that really paid attention to, to deep rosters.
0: And his name and, was? Uh,
5: His name was Jackie Wallace. I went back to my editors, and I asked the sports editor if he had ever heard of a man named Jackie Wallace, and every head in the sports department popped up, and they started telling me about him being a superstar at St. Aug High School, went to Arizona, was an All-American cornerback there, and then was drafted with the Vikings, went to the Baltimore Colts, and then to the Los Angeles Rams. Then they said the magic moment. Nobody knows where he is anymore. He's just disappeared.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. When did he play professional ball? Uh, He played in
5: 73 to 1980.
0: And you saw him when? When did you first encounter him?
5: Uh, 1990. And so it was 10 years after he had dropped off or had left football.
0: And the people in the newsroom knew that he had dropped out of sight, that no one knew where he
5: he was. Yes, they knew he was missing but I don't know that they knew he was homeless. I just think that they knew that no one had paid attention to him. It didn't hear from him for all those years.
0: So you went back to him?
5: We went back that day. Jimmy Smith went back with me. We did a profile story on Jackie. That was a Tuesday when I found him. The story published on a Friday on the front page of the paper. That afternoon, former teammates from St. Aug High School went and found him and they sent him to a rehab clinic in Baltimore because he was addicted to crack.
0: He left the NFL and became a drug addict right away. What was his story in those 10 years?
5: No, he didn't become a drug addict right away. He was depressed after he left the NFL because he was one of those classic cases where he had not prepared himself for life after football. He thought that life would continue forever, you know, and so he had not saved any money, but he pulled himself out of that funk. And got a job offshore, making more money than he had ever made in the NFL. But it wasn't until years later that his mother died. And he just loved his mother so much because, as he tells me, she was the one person that gave him unconditional love. And the night of her funeral, he went and found a cousin who sold crack and became addicted that night.
0: When did he end up on the streets?
5: He tried to hide it from his girlfriend at the time who he was living with, but he started missing the shift offshore. He started missing the helicopters that flew him offshore. And, and when he missed that for the second time and when he didn't pick up his paycheck, his girlfriend figured it out. And she wasn't going to have a drug addict in her house, and so she kicked him out. Then it was a few years later when I found him.
0: This was 30 years ago.
5: This was 30 years ago in 1990 when I found him.
0: you've just written the book. You ought to do a story about me.
5: Right, because it talks about all those 30 years later. At the time, it was an interesting story, and and people were fascinated about that part of it. But honestly, that's where the book starts. All of what I've told you so far is in the first chapter. It is (laughs) unbelievable. It is just absolutely unbelievable. He lived happily ever after, so I thought. In Baltimore, he got married. He had a home. He had a job, and they were just doing quite well. And it was about 12 years later that I discovered that he had had a fight with his wife, and he had disappeared and was now missing again. And so there was another 12-year span there, and then another 12 years passed, when I looked for him trying to figure out what had happened.
0: The book is called uh, You Ought to Do a Story About Me. The author, photographer is Ted Jackson. Ted, thank you so much. If this doesn't get people (laughs) to buy this book, I don't know what would. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh,
5: you bet. Getting to write this book has been a joy. I sometimes... I would sit at my desk and just pound the desk thinking, you know, what made me think I could do this? But I kept at it because I knew that I had been given a very unique opportunity and I was not going to blow it because this story is amazing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ted, thanks so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.